Professors FM. You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Sam Bowles, who is a research professor at the Santa Fe Institute, right, which is where they study complexity. Right? I don't know if is complexity in the name. Is it the Santa Fe Institute of Complexity? Is that what they call it? It's it's in the DNA. I mean, it's basically yeah. The word comes up uh, more than twice in the, in every sentence. Yeah. No, I've always been fascinated by what happens over there at Santa Fe. But uh, you've also uh, written quite a few books. The most recent one is called "The Moral Economy: Why Good Incentives Are No Substitute for Good Citizens." But you, you've also written more technical books. This one is called A Cooperative Species, Human Reciprocity and Its Evolution. You've written a textbook on microeconomics, and you participated in this new open access textbook called The Core. We'll maybe talk about that. Wrote a book, co-authored a book on democracy and capital, The New Economics of Inequality and Redistribution, another book co-authored called Understanding Capitalism. Quite a few books. Welcome, Sam. Thanks very much, Greg. Great to be here. Now, I look at this book, Moral Economy. I mean, you are, in a way, channeling Adam Smith, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of Adam Smith, and one of the things I like about him is that he has these two sides to him, right? The one side, which is focused on the workings of the economy, and the other one that is focused on who we are as people and what we might call maybe our preferences. And it seems like modern economics has just focused on the former, kind of ignored the latter. And if it was just a simple matter of saying, hey, we're just going to carve out this domain and focus on this domain and leave the other domain to others, I guess that would be fine, except that the way in which they do that requires that they make certain assumptions right, about that other domain. And I think the bulk of your work has been questioning right, th those assumptions and, and questioning whether it's even possible to do these things separately, right? Can you simply hold as given preferences and moral character when in practice those things aren't fixed, right? You know, we love as a social scientist to do ceteris paribus for the purpose of analysis, but, you know, in, in the real world, things are never ceteris paribus. So, yeah, ceteris ain't paribus. Yeah. So I wonder, maybe we could start by saying, how did economics go down this road? I mean, part of it is, obviously just for simplicity, but there are these implied beliefs about human nature, right? And they've taken over, and while we do them explicitly, we don't necessarily support them empirically. Well, that's exactly right, Greg. It's a very strange development. If you go back to Smith or the other classical economists, they understood that human beings are both self-interested and moral, it was a big part of their writing, David Hume, John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, and they just took that as obvious. Now, Mill also, John Stuart Mill, also introduced this idea of homo economicus. He didn't use the term, but he developed the idea that, well, let's, as a discipline, focus on a particular aspect of humans, the wealth-maximizing aspect, 
your own wealth maximizing aspect. And that was introduced as sort of parsimonious move to allow the simplification and then in my lifetime, the mathematization of the field. And it seemed a pretty good idea. And indeed, it allowed us to mathematically formalize a lot of important ideas in economics and therefore see them much more clearly. But it came along with some baggage that most people didn't realize. <clears throat> and that was, if you separate out this aspect of humanity, that is our selfish part, then when it comes to making public policy, you treat the citizen as if they were selfish. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. In the first place, citizens are not always selfish, and they're often ethical, they're often care about what happens to other people, and public policy has to make use of that. We can't have a public policy that works without drawing on people's ethical and sometimes cooperative sentiments. It just doesn't work. No one, none of the great thinkers have ever imagined that you could have a society based on entirely self-interested people. So there has to be some other part of the person that's there but why not treat it as if it's separate? Well, the problem is this. If you design policies that treat people as if they're self-interested, you're more likely to get people to act in self-interested ways. So it's not only that these policies are gonna be misguided, they may even be counterproductive and backfire. And they may produce a citizenry which requires increasing regulation, increasing coercion, because as if you generate an increasingly self-interested population by treating people as if they're selfish, well, then you're going to end up with a very, very authoritarian society or chaos. Right. Now, I think the folks who are designing incentives as policymakers or lawmakers, right, to follow in the tradition of Aristotle, they would say, okay, fine, yeah, there are good people out there and there are knaves, right? There's saints and there's knaves. And so wouldn't it be prudential to design a system that doesn't depend on people being saints. I mean, this is the idea behind Alexander Hamilton and the design of the Constitution. And and I think this is Adam Smith, when he talked about the invisible hand, right? He, he, he was saying, you know, we can't necessarily depend on the generosity. We, we need to design a system that works regardless of the character of the people. Isn't that the prudential way to go? Well, that is the way that's been advocated, perhaps surprisingly to some of our listeners, going back to Machiavelli. Machiavelli said, anyone who wants to design a constitution should treat everyone as if they were wicked. And then he went on to say, hunger makes them industrious and fear makes them good. Now, he wasn't saying that laws and fear will make people be good. He was saying fear and laws will make people act as if they were good. Exactly the same thing was said by David Hume, the 18th century British philosopher economist. He said, in designing a constitution, we should assume that everyone is a knave, the word you just used, and has only their own interests at heart. And then the next sentence is really critical. By his avarice, we shall rule him and get him to contribute to the public good. Wow. So that's an idea of harnessing self-interest, and it's a dominant idea in economics. Now, it's a strange thing that if you go back and read carefully, I have the good fortune of having worked in Italy for a long time, so I can read carefully Machiavelli in Italian. What he says right after that is, of course, a good government requires morals in, on the part of the population. Hume, in the next sentence, says, 
It may seem odd that an axiom for the design of constitution should be false, in fact. It's false that people are names. Now, the prudential argument is this. <clears throat> okay, they're not. They're not names. Machiavelli knows it. And if Machiavelli knows it, anybody must take it for granted, Hume and so on. People are complicated, sometimes generous, sometimes ethical. But so the idea is you're going to produce a knave-proof constitution. And that's the idea of treating everybody as if they're self-interested and then finding a constitution that works for them. Well, the problem with that is constitutions, laws, policies, and so on, based on the assumption that people are self-interested, sometimes just don't work very well. And none of these people thought that you could have a society based only on self-interest. Uh, so the question is, how can we recruit the, the natural self and the natural generosity of people uh, and their cooperativeness? Of course, paying attention to their self-interest and their venality in some situations. Uh, how can we write a constitution for an empirically realistic individual uh, which has all of these traits? And the, the, the new thing which we've found out, I would say, in the last uh, 30 years or so, is that the policies designed for the knaves really may produce knaves. We see this in experiments. People act incredibly selfishly if they're given incentives and constraints. So now we have a problem. I think it's interesting to see what was so attractive about the assumption of self-interest to Adam Smith and to the people of those decades and centuries. Now, it wasn't that they thought this was what people are like, but they were responding to the idea that you could build a society fundamentally based on self-interest. I think it's false, but they thought that that might be possible and they were trying that out. They were responding to the 17th and 18th century, particularly the 17th century, which in Europe was an extraordinarily warlike time, religious wars. So when they put forward the idea of self-interest as this kind of idea for economics, it was not an alternative to altruism. What they thought the alternative to self-interest was, was zealotry and religious intolerance. And so you can see that, well, maybe self-interest, as many put it, you know, not that many crimes have been committed on the basis of self-interest as have been committed on the basis of zealotry, religious intolerance, and so on. So that's where they were coming from. But I think it's time to say now it didn't work. Uh, and it can't work. We'll never solve the problems facing us, whether it's economic injustice, whether it's how to handle new innovations, whether it's how to handle climate change, we have to have a combination of incentives and constraints of the traditional kind and appeal to people's desire to be members of a community and to actually do something that they'll be proud of because they're good human beings. And when I say this, you say, well, okay, that sounds a bit idealistic. Well, I think it's actually quite inspiring. I wouldn't be saying it if it hadn't been for three decades of experiments which showed, much to the surprise of economists and also biologists, that yes, human beings are often willing to give up a lot of money just for justice, or to punish someone who has been unfair, or just to be generous. Yeah, and I want to dig into those experiments, but you know, what about the Hayekian critique, right? Like, okay, fine, you've got all these people that are interested in public goods provision and, and doing what's right, and they're utilitarians, you know, how are they supposed to figure out what to do, right? I mean, isn't that the job of prices? So I'm concerned about global warming. So 
jump in my private jet to go to Davos. I'll be sure to get the metal straw. I mean, don't we need to have prices tell us what to do? And if we get the prices right, I mean, this is sort of the, you know, the arrow de brew ideal, right? If we can all, if we have perfect contracts and we have right, the price of everything and we get all the prices right, then yeah, you know, it doesn't really matter your moral qualities are. You're going to get the same result, whether you're altruistic or, or selfish, right? Well, this is exactly what happened in the passage from the classical economist to the neoclassical and to the modern period. There was, of course, a period, you mentioned Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas, Machiavelli even, a whole host of people who saw that government is relying on a combination of civic virtues and self-interest combined. But then, essentially, with the help of economics and economic theory, the idea was developed that we could let prices do the work of morals. Now, I'm a big admirer of Hayek. I think his representation of how markets work, his defense of markets against central planning, is the best that there is. And I think that we can learn a lot from Hayek. Yes, prices give us the information we need to coordinate decisions over a large group of people, strangers not caring about each other, and so on. I think of and will strongly urge your listeners to read his 1945 paper, The Role of Knowledge in Society. It's one of the best papers in economics. That does not mean that prices are sufficient. The idea that you can substitute prices for morals, that's a radical thing. Because let's think about under what conditions could it possibly work. You mentioned Arrow de Brugge. Now, the advantage of Arrow de Brugge, their theorems are sometimes called the invisible hand theorems but it really should be called the last nail in the coffin of the invisible hand theorem, because having started with Adam Smith, the idea that markets unregulated could bring about a socially beneficial outcome, uh, it took a long time to really nail down exactly under what conditions could you do that. Now, it turns out that the two theorems that were proved, the so-called fundamental welfare theorems, have extremely strong assumptions, as is now well known. The first is that everything that matters is subject to a contract, which is enforceable at zero cost to the exchanging parties. That's called complete markets. So everything that matters is on the market, and it is exchanged under contract. The other is that increasing returns is not a very important part of the economy. You can have some, but they can't be very strong. <clears throat> now, as Arrow, I mean, having proven this in the early 50s, he spent the better part of the rest of his life pointing out all the reasons why that economy could never exist. Now, I think that's important because I think most of economics has given up on the idea of an arrow de Brugge world in which you have complete contracts and you have minimal increasing returns. It's just not the world we live in. But because the, the term incomplete contracts sounds like a legal definition or perhaps a little narrow, I want to stress just how important that is. When we think of how we interact in society, of course, we interact in many, many ways. And if you think of maybe the 19th century, think of the ways that people interacted outside of family. Well, probably a lot of them had to do with buying or selling things, grain, steel, and so on. It, maybe that was a world in which many of the things which we were interacting about, we were actually buying and selling stuff according to a contract that was pretty complete. If you didn't deliver the wheat, you don't get paid. Or if you did get paid, you can pretty surely get your money back. Now, look at the world today. 
what we have is an, uh, an economy based on the production of services and information. The stuff that we're exchanging with each other can't be very well defined, whether it's software or whether it's being waited on in a restaurant by a, a wait person or whether it's caring for the elderly or producing knowledge or research, what I do. The stuff that we're producing and exchanging can't be written down in contracts because we simply can't measure it. This is a point that Hayek made. I mean, how ironic it is that Hayek, the great defender of the market, now turns out to be mobilized against the sufficiency of markets for the very reason that we don't have the information which would allow us to write complete contracts in what we do. But think about the most important thing, just work. Work is so multidimensional and hard to measure. No one could write a complete contract in the work that you or I do, or for that matter, anyone that you see in the course of a day's work. So we're now in an economy in which, of course, prices are essential. We still have to do our best with prices. We have to make them reflect as much as possible the social marginal cost of the production of goods. And of course, we don't do that very well now, primarily because we don't take account of the environmental costs of the goods and services that we consume. But the idea that people are given to moral sentiments, to use Adam Smith's terms, and occasionally act cooperatively and generously, even when no one is looking, that should be seen as not an embarrassment, not something which sociologists are forcing us to think about, but rather as something that is really beautiful about what human beings are like, and a tremendous resource for all of the people who are desperately hoping for a better world one in which we can have a more just distribution of the goods of society and a more sustainable planet. It's something we can work with, and economists should embrace it rather than trying to essentially say, well, that may be something that we should let the philosophy department deal with or the sociologists. Well, this thing you call the legislator's problem, right, which is how much do you rely on laws and how much do you rely on morals? I mean, it's the same problem as the manager's problem, right? How much do you want to rely on extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic motivation. And it's also the parents' problem, right? Going back to Becker, it's the parents' problem. I mean, anytime you're trying to elicit behavior, right, this is the problem you confront. And the, the way I like to think about it is that the Arrow de Brew kind of fantasy, right? I mean, this is like level five autonomous driving, right? In the sense that we, we talk about level five autonomous driving and then we think, oh, isn't that awesome? And then we think, well, the closer we get to it, then the better. But what we've seen in practice is that if you start moving that direction, it, you actually get lower performance because people begin to substitute a reliance on the autonomy for a reliance on attentiveness, right? And so the real question that you're highlighting is to what extent are laws and morals or intrinsic versus ex extrinsic motivation separable? Or are they substitutes or are they complements? And I think, depending on the context, they can be all three, right? Yeah, that's right. Funny you should mention the parents' problem because this will strike some of your readers as, yes, that's what you would expect of an economist. But I was a single dad when my kids were growing up and my kids were great when they were young teenagers. They were very helpful and they helped their dad out a lot around the house. But as they got a little older, they wanted to buy clothes and stuff as they got to be teenagers. So I had this great idea, which is that I would supplement their allowances by paying them for stuff which they had been doing voluntarily around the house. You know, every week or every couple of days, we'd do some cleaning or this and that. And 
So instead of just doing that as a group, I put a price list on the fridge. And so you could actually pick up money for the stuff that you were doing. And then they could go out and buy whatever they wanted, didn't have to have a fight with their dad about whether they really needed uh, that particular piece of clothing. Great idea. Something an economist would have thought of. <clears throat> uh, I'll bet you can guess what happened. They stopped doing anything. I was left cleaning the house myself. Now, you could say, well, I guess the price wasn't right. Well, actually, I had talked to them about prices before I put the prices up. I said, yeah, that's a reasonable price for that. A couple of dollars for that, $10, million, whatever. Now, so, yeah, I did. That's a problem that you face in society. If your population is not committed to playing by the rules, there's no way to make them play by the rules. And, I mean, we see that in some societies in which the level of commitment to the legitimacy of the rules is so low that that's a terrible problem. Now, I don't think that, I mean, the problem sounds complex, but I think it just seems complex to economists who are so used to thinking about how, well, if you do it well enough, you can design a mechanism to implement a creative efficient or some other desirable outcome. I think we do need to know a lot more about how people respond to incentives and constraints. And on that, I think we can learn a lot from psychology. I mean, they were the first ones who started in the 70s figuring out that if you pay people for things, they may do it less rather than more, or they do it less well. And if you supervise them too closely, they may basically, if you'll excuse the expression, give you the middle finger. And so that's now been taken over in economics. I think economists have really improved a lot on what the psychologists taught us initially because of our better design of experiments. And we now have lots and lots of evidence that, as you put it, yes, sometimes monetary incentives and a person's pre-existing commitment to do a good job or to uh, contribute, sometimes they're substitutes. And just to recall, what is a substitute? A substitute is are two goods or two activities or substitutes if more of one reduces the value of the other. And we see that in experiments where it's, if you give a person an incentive to do something, you would expect, if you thought that the incentives and the moral motive were just additive, well, then if you add an incentive, you should get an increase in the activity, whatever it is you're incentivizing. Well, as I said before, what we observe, sometimes you actually get less. But, and very often what you get is you get more, but just a little bit more. You don't get as much more as you expected you would get if you assumed the two things just were really separate. And separable means that increasing or decreasing one of them doesn't have any effect on the effectiveness of the other. Now, so most of the experiments have shown that what I call the moral sentiments and material incentives are substitutes, that's crowding out. But what we're looking for is the opposite. We're looking for situations in which if you impose some kind of constraint or if you impose an incentive, a monetary incentive, it actually recruits the psychological orientation of the citizen or the worker to actually contribute. And we have examples of that as well. I mean, the classic experiment for crowding out, as I'm sure you know, but maybe not all of your listeners do, is the idea of parents coming late to pick up their kids at a daycare center. And the idea was, this is in Haifa, Israel. This is Yuri Gnezi's famous experiment. Yeah. And the idea was, well, let's impose a fine. And so a fine was imposed, a sign was posted on the door, 
as from next week, anybody arriving more than 10 minutes late will have to pay 10 Israeli shekels a fee. No explanation for this was given. It was just an announcement. And this was done in some of the daycares and not others. And the results were really extraordinary. The number of parents coming late in the daycares where the fine was imposed doubled. And not only that, it doubled and it even continued at a high level after they got rid of the fine. They, uh, and obviously there was no effect in the control daycares. Now, this has been interpreted as essentially the introduction of the incentive changes the moral framework, the framing of the individual. The parent deciding whether they'll stop to get a cup of coffee or maybe continue talking with a friend or something like that before picking up their kid. Before the fine, they probably thought at some low level, perhaps, this is actually an obligation, a moral obligation. I'm obliged to pick up my kid. I'm obliged to get the kid off the hands of the teacher so they can go home and uh, be with their family and so on. There's just some sense of obligation. But once you put a price on that, well, step right up. If you want to buy lateness, it only costs 10 Israeli shekels. So that's all you have to do for the... And by the way, I'm sure I know people, and I won't uh, make uh, any aspersions about your friends, but I do know people who consider a parking ticket as just the price of parking in that particular place. And they know damn well they're going to get a ticket, but they don't care. But we do have lots of examples in experiments, and also in real life, where it works out differently. For example, when Ireland imposed, after a long political conflict, a small tax on the use of plastic grocery bags, that's just like the Haifa daycare, right? It's a fine on some activity which is thought to be undesirable. And what happened? The use of plastic bags disappeared within two weeks. Plastic bags became like, I don't know, wearing a fur coat or something. You just didn't do it. And so what's the difference here? Well, I don't know, but we got to find out because that second case is a case in which the use of fines and incentives, the kind of stuff economists are good at designing, actually had a super additive effect because it must have recruited the, the moral sentiment of people in Ireland that, oh, well, actually, it isn't that good to actually be carrying plastic bags. So what's the difference? Well, in Haifa, there was just a sign saying, if you're late, you're going to pay. In Ireland, just because of the terms of the debate, part of this was a very massive publicity program. Don't trash the Emerald Isle and so on that preceded it. And not only that, when you got to check out your groceries, it's a public situation. If you're picking up your kids late, it's just between you and the teacher. The other parents aren't around. They already picked up their kids. So if we can study these situations and figure out ways in which we can take on board the fact that people would like to be good citizens. Of course, they're also selfish and mobilize that in the pursuit of public policy. Yeah, I want to dig into those differences. I mean, the behavioral law and economics literature from a couple of decades ago, I mean, they were on the side of the compliments, right? So I think they, they were saying, hey, you pass a pooper scooper law and all of a sudden people stop to pick up their poop, even though no one's watching in every circumstance. And, and same thing with seatbelts and, and littering and so forth. But I think there the idea is that you're also authorizing the community to kind of scold the person, right? You know, it's a signal, right? That this is no longer acceptable by the community. But I want to go back to the substitute idea because it, Thomas Schelling also has a similar story where he was, you know, working at the White House, right? And they started giving bonuses and then people stopped going to the meetings. There's a whole bunch of stories like that. But what's the mechanism here? I mean, is... 
You said that there's been some research which suggests that this involves a shift towards a more deliberative way of approaching the problem in some cases. And the deliberative or kind of, you know, system two way of thinking is more compatible with cost benefit analysis. And and that system one is, at least in some subset of cases, more aligned with concerns that might be moral? Yeah, gosh, there's a lot in what you said. I want to come back to the idea that you said about what's called technically the expressive function of law, because I think there's overwhelming evidence that the expressive function of law during the COVID epidemic with the use of mandates for vaccines backfired. And so that was, I would love to write a paper, I'm working on this with a co-author now, why did the expressive function of law fail during the COVID epidemic? But let's set that aside. It did fail. And get to the question, what's really going on here? Well, here's a mistake that economists sometimes make. When we think of people acting, we think that we're acting to get stuff. When we make a decision about saving, investment, getting a job, working hard, whatever, shopping, we're getting stuff. Now, we know, you and I, that when we act, we're acting to get stuff, and we're also acting to be something. So it's not just getting we're talking about, it's becoming. Now, yes, we want to be someone. We want to be a particular kind of person. Now, so if you add becoming to getting, then you have a better view of what humans are like. Now, what is this becoming? Are we just being generous so as to uh, impress other people? Yes, probably that's part of it. But speaking for myself, but also on the basis of a lot of psychological research, We're also signaling to ourselves. We're reaffirming to ourselves that we're that kind of person, whether it's brave or in the case of gender, I don't know, manly or or, or female, or we affirm what we're like by doing certain things. And that process, I call that, I mean, if you want to assign sort of a label to this, we have an acquisitive reason for activities and we have a constitutive reason for them. A constitutive reason is something which is constituting us. Now, <clears throat> to come back to the incentives, what's the- is that orthogonal to deliberative? Is, I mean, because you could also do that in a deliberative way and say, okay, look, here's who, after long reflection, I don't want to be the kind of person who does X, right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. That is orthogonal. I'll come to the deliberative on which I think there's a lot of evidence, which is a, a little bit upsetting, the, the nature of the evidence. But if you contrast the acquisitive side of our actions with the constitutive side, neither is good nor bad. For example, some of the constitutive stuff is pretty horrible. And the ways in which we try to be male, for example, may not be particularly socially valuable. But what I'm trying to put across is that we have these desires to be someone, and we're trying to become someone as well as to acquire things. Now, if you have an incentive Suppose there's some public good activity you can engage in. The incentive appeals to your acquisitive motives. Oh, I can contribute to the public good. Suppose the public good is this. The, uh, the mayor wants people to get training in, in first aid so that during crises, more people can help others. And so then there's an advertisement and you can go do these programs. And then they say, and besides that, you're going to get paid $500 if you complete the course. Now, what's the effect of that going to be? Well, it'll appeal to your acquisitive motives. You get the $500. But it also could trash your constitutive motives because 
Part of doing that is you wanted to show off to other people and to yourself that you're the kind of person who's willing to take three nights a week for a while to learn how to save somebody's life. So in other words, appealing to the acquisitive motive can undermine the constitutive reason for doing something. Now, it eliminates your ability to signal, right? You can't signal now. If you wanted to signal that you were an altruistic person, you can't, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the psychological literature going back to the 70s, it's called over-justification. That is, in ordinary language, we say, he did it for the money. And so if money's involved, there's another plausible reason why somebody did something. And in addition to the fact, you know, if I'm helping somebody, I'm getting paid for it. You don't really know what it is. But of course, if there's no money involved, it's more pure signal. And I think that's a lot of what's going on. Now, to get to the deliberative. No, that's why if if instead of paying you uh, in cash, I say, okay, I will donate this money to your favorite charity. That changes things a bit, right? Yes. In fact, a lot of this is we should think about, are there ways of converting are these monetary transactions into things like prizes instead of pay. And that, you know, because obviously a prize means something very different from just a payment. And I mean, imagine what would have happened to go back to the Israeli daycare example. Instead of this little notice on the door saying you're going to have to pay if you're late, suppose it had said this, dear parents, we at the school want to thank you all for picking up your kids on time, which most of you do all the time. We understand sometimes it's difficult to do that because of traffic, but you have to understand that's really hard on your kids and it's hard on our kids too, because we can't get home. So from the future, we're going to charge 500 Israeli shekels, a larger amount, if you're late. And we're going to give that money to the Teacher of the Year Award to honor the teachers who serve our kids so well. Oh, I'll bet. I wish I had the money and the opportunity to run that experiment. I'll bet you'd get a different response. The reason is you would have evoked people's sense of, oh, yes, there's a common cause here. And also the fine would be larger. But I think even a smaller fine, you wouldn't have had the crowding out because one of the things I think is pretty clear, when fines and incentives are used in a way to distribute the gains of a transaction from one person to the other, wow, that is a recipe for crowding out. And there are a lot of experiments on that. If a fine is being imposed or some kind of constraint is being imposed for the common good, you don't see crowding out. Let me give you two examples about this. There's an experiment called the trust game. I'm not sure why it's called the trust game. It's actually an investment game in which the first person is given by the experimenter a sum of money. They can allocate as much as they want, including zero or the whole thing, to another party, the second person. On the way to the second person, it gets tripled. Then when the second person gets it, the second person can send some back, including nothing or the whole thing. Now, obviously, suppose I'm the first person, you're the second. I have my $100. I give you the $100. You have $300. You send me back $150. Great deal, right? Now, what's interesting is a game theorist and an economist like me looking at this I said, well, if people are entirely selfish, the first person is not going to give any money because by backward induction, they'll figure out the second person will never return any. So why would you ever give any? That's never what happens. Never. People give a lot and people give back a lot, suggesting that in this anonymous situation with real money, sometimes big money, they reciprocate. Now, in that experiment, 
if you allow the first person to impose a fine on the second person, so I say, here's my $100, and if you give me back anything less than $150, i am going to fine you. The experimenter would allow this, right? Well, then what happened? Well, what happened then, surprisingly, was people reciprocated much less. And they just wouldn't, I mean, if, if people send stuff, they just wouldn't send it back. Even they'd get fined. Now, what's going on there? Well, the second person was figuring out what kind of person I was, the first person. Are you a decent guy? Yes, I'm a decent guy if I give 100. But I'm not such a decent guy if I give 100 and say, uh, I'm going to find you unless you give back most of what you get. Give me back 250 and I won't find you. So you get 50 and I get 250. Well, now, so there's a lot of crowding out there. People really responded negatively. So I went back and looked at the data. And what I found was really rem remarkable. When people said, I'm giving you 100. And if you give me enough back, so we split the amount 50-50. Otherwise, I'll impose a fine on you. No problem. No crowding out. The fine didn't crowd out. When the fine crowded out was when I said, here's my 100. And unless you give most of it back to me, I'm going to fine you. That's when people said, go to hell. And they didn't reciprocate. So in other words, notice what's going on here. The crowding out phenomenon was not a response to the incentive. It was a response to greed. It was a response to the fact that the first party was trying to control the second in their interest. So now this may sound like a fairly obvious economist defending incentives, but there is a point here which is a lot of the negative evidence about incentives is actually negative evidence about people trying to dominate and exploit each other. That's what people are responding to. So I think in a more egalitarian society, we might actually have more scope for incentives, which were not used to exploit or to dominate, but which are actually used to promote the public good. Let me give you an example of how that works. In public goods games, where people can contribute to the public good, it's basically an end-person prisoner's dilemma. That is, the selfish individual should give nothing. And that's usually what happens if you play it 10, 10 rounds. People, and they give about half of what they could give. It's very it's common across cultures. People give some, but not everything. And then they notice other people are not giving enough, they get angry, and pretty soon nobody's giving anything by the end of the game. If you change this game so that anonymously, People say, oh, person two in your group gave nothing. You can take money out of your own pocket and punish that person. Now, so that's changing the rules of the game because it allows peer punishment. The amazing thing in that game is that people punish the ones who don't contribute. And by the time you get up to around five, six, or seven, everybody's contributing. Nobody's punishing anymore because everybody's contributing either because they're afraid of getting punished or they actually genuinely want to contribute. Now, there's a couple of lessons here. First, pay attention to the rules of the game. We can design rules of the game so that populations which are mixed, composed of some people who are generous and some who are selfish, we can design rules of the game that get everybody to act as if they're generous. Instead of, in some market situations, everybody acts as if they're selfish, even if some of them are generous. So that's one point. But the second point is, oh, now, wait a minute. Why didn't the public goods game turn out like the daycare center in Haifa, Israel? Because remember, in Haifa, when they were fined, people responded negatively. And in this situation, when people were fined, they responded positively. And for that matter, 
why did they actually find the person at all? Because if I'm in a group of people and I take money out of my pocket to find you because you're some scumbag who didn't contribute, well, everybody else is going to benefit. That's a public good itself. My punishment of you is a public good. So how come if I wasn't willing to contribute to the public good itself, I was willing to contribute to punishing you? Well, I think human beings may have developed both genetically and culturally to really be very worried about free riders and to respond emotionally to that. And again, that's a very positive view because in that game, even if you change the membership of the groups as you go along, so that my punishing you could never benefit me at all because you're going to be in a different group next time. So if you shape up while well, somebody else benefits, it's not me. Uh, people still punish like crazy. And so, in other words, again, it's a hopeful sign. That is, people are willing to actually do something to uphold just rules. They'll respond negatively if it's domination and exploitation, but fines imposed for the better of the whole tend to be actually pretty effective. Well, look, I live in Berkeley, so... Uh I think I'm on the receiving end of a lecture at least once a day from some public citizen who's trying to enforce some norm right, on what to eat you know, and what to do. But so I teach a game theory course, and I don't know if it's unusual, but my course is half standard economic theory and half is empirical game theory. And there are these radical differences between what theory says you're going to observe and what you actually observe. But a lot of people would say that the more exposure people have to game theory, then the more they start to behave in ways that are more consistent with the economic models, right? So you do an ultimatum game or you do a dictator game, right? And then you remind people, hey, now listen, remember you are, it is anonymous. Like it is anonymous. Remember it is anonymous. And then they go, oh, okay. And then you start to see the behavior change. Now, I don't know if there's, I think there's been some anecdotal evidence that people who have studied economics behave differently. I don't know if there's been any RCTs on this, but if, if that's the case, then it, it is a little worrisome that more deliberation would lead to more antisocial behavior. What does that say about sort of- you, um, you probably figured out already. I love economics. I think a lot ought to change in it, and I'll say something about that before I finish. But I think there's a lot of criticism of economics that makes sense. I've spent my life criticizing economics so far. But this idea that economics, studying economics, makes you selfish, I think the evidence for that is pretty weak. I just published a paper on that saying, does studying economics make you selfish? And spoiler alert for those of you on the left who would like to think the answer is yes. Well, I think the answer is no. And this is based on a set of experiments done using fairly sophisticated both experimental evidence, not just survey evidence before and after courses in economics and not in economics and so on. So I think most of the evidence about economics is selection. That is, people who are relatively self-interested tend to take economics course because the evidence that people in economics courses are more self-interested, I think that's true, but it may not be causal. I know I wouldn't hinge my skepticism just on one paper, but I haven't seen evidence that persuaded me that the study of economics makes people selfish. I can think of many reasons why it might. I expected that it would, but I, I don't think there's uh, much, much evidence for it. But you mentioned deliberative, and I said that's really different from this acquisitive versus constitutive part. Yes, that's right, and, but we know a fair amount about the mental processing of incentives uh, and constraints and so on. 
And we know, for example, that if you provide an incentive, this is from fMRI studies, brain imaging, if there's a game in which there's no incentives and the players are processing something else made in game or something, we know where they process this before they make a decision. When you add incentives, you tend to remove the processing away from what's called the limbic system towards the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain which does deliberative reward processing. And so, and it's away from this, this more affective response to that's unjust, that's gross, or whatever. And so we know that's true, or at least we have good evidence that it's true. And that's true. I mean, it would be surprising if it weren't true. That is, obviously, we have different kinds of reaction. Our brain is a complex organism. And, but we do know that money will move. Put some money on the table and the part, different parts of your brain will work. To come back to economics, you mentioned at the beginning that I'm part of a team that's been working for the past 12 years to change how intro to economics is taught. And to get back to what I said before, I think economics today is fantastic. There's fantastic work being done in economics. And first-year students in undergrads are not getting it. They're getting the economics of the 1980s or maybe even 100 years before that. And the what we teach our grad students, I love, particularly in the area of micro. I'm not as convinced that what the grad students are getting in macro is, is so great. But what we tried to do, the group of us headed by Wendy Carlin, who's at the University College of London, is we put together a team of people from around the world, economics researchers and teachers, and we created this free online course, which is now being taught at Oxford, University College London, Princeton, a lot of good places. And what we do is we start the course not by teaching a bunch of models and then toy applications like to shopping or something. We start the course with what we call the capitalist revolution. That is, what happened in the world in the past 200, 300 years is that some countries got very much more affluent, eradicating the dire poverty in which people have lived for thousands of years. And that's something which capitalism did. Now, let's understand how that happened. It's a dynamic problem. It has to do with technical progress. So the first, the first model the students get is they get Schumpeter, a technical change. The first equilibrium they hear about is a bad equilibrium. I mean, students in economics always think the word equilibrium means good. But what about a Malthusian equilibrium? So we're starting with a problem that students are really interested in because it has to do with global inequality. The other thing we do right at the beginning is climate change. When we talk about the facts of it, we do some essentially training in data use and so on. And, this, and then, so we've begun the course with essentially inequalities and climate change. And then we sit down and say, what would economics look like if that's what you were trying to figure out? And that's what we wrote. And we think economics has a lot to say about that, but it's not what the students are getting in their intro courses, or for that matter, in their intermediate courses. Because what they're getting in those courses is basically Marshall plus Keynes. And Marshall plus Keynes is not where it's at in economics now. Marshall plus Keynes is fantastic. But what about Nash? What about Coase? What about Hayek? What about Ostrom? What about Schumpeter? If we're going to make economics serve humanity, we have to bring in those other people. Marshall and Keynes won't hack it. And unfortunately, that's still mostly what the undergrads are getting. This program is called CORE. It's called C-O-R-E, CORE. It's a curriculum, online resources for economics. We named it CORE because we're not talking about adding something to the periphery of the curriculum. 
we're talking about changing the core paradigm that students get. And we're doing yeah, I mean, when I was studying economics as an undergrad, I was extremely frustrated <laughs> with the curriculum and had to venture out to find some interesting stuff. And all that stuff has been brought into economics, right? Uh, which is what makes it so exciting. But I want to get back to this idea of how explicit incentives drive out intrinsic motivations. Because, I mean, this is consistent with Marx's critique, right? I mean, Marx had this view that the market was corroding and, and undermining all of these other forms of, of social organization. But there's a counter to that, which goes all the way back to Voltaire, right? And when Voltaire visited England and saw the, the marketplace at work, he said, look at this. Look at these people. Like, so you, got, you got Jews and Muslims and Christians and Quakers, and, and they're all dealing with each other, and none of them are killing each other. And this is fantastic. We need more of this. And when you did all of those global experiments. I mean, this body of experiments is fantastic. And I spent a lot of time teaching this in my classes. You found something similar, right? And the folks who behaved in the, the most reciprocal way, I mean, you found them where? In, in Missouri, you know, and in and, and the places where you had the most market penetration. So, I mean, part of this has to do with rule of law. And is rule of law a complement to market organization, or should we be thinking of them as separate in terms of their impact on this substitution? Thanks for mentioning those experiments. We did behavioral experiments all over the world, but instead of with students, we did them with hunter-gatherers, with low-tech farmers, herders in the Amazon, in Mongolia, and so on in Africa. And we were looking for cultural variation because we'd gotten the message that students around the world are very similar. By the way, they're not much like homo economicus. But we said, okay, well, let's go look at places where we have some differences. And we got some big differences. These places were very different culturally. But one of the things that came through was when we played the games, the students, sorry, the participants who came from places who had some limited amount of at least market contact, they tended to be more generous than the ones who were much more isolated and mostly were just producing stuff for themselves. And so, not surprisingly, this news made it to the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which celebrated the civilizing effects of markets, which is what Voltaire was celebrating in the passage that you just mentioned. And yes, I think it's true. I think that, in, that essentially, remember, if you're in a hunting and gathering society or in a very small, isolated farming community, you never see strangers. Strangers are actually a problem for you. And they're dangerous because they're not part of your world. They're not part of the world in which you live safely. Now, what a market does, and this is what Voltaire stressed and many others, Montesquieu and others, right up to Milton Friedman, that essentially markets put you in contact with people different from you who you wouldn't otherwise be in contact with, from whom you can benefit mutually if you all obey the rules. And that's a training in toleration. Now, I'm not saying at all that's the only thing more. And I suspect, I mean, these were very isolated societies. But if you look at, for example, modern Europe, which has been a market-based society for a very long time, the experimental evidence from modern Europe is that Europeans, with this very long history of market exposure, tend to be more generous, more cooperative than people in other parts of the world where markets have had less of a historical trajectory. Now, I'm so glad you mentioned rule of law, because... What we know from experiments is it might go the opposite way. That is, the market exchanges might make people selfish because of the incentive effects. But you have to think of what's the alternative. 
Suppose you didn't have markets. How then would you transact goods? Well, one of the ways you transact goods when you don't have markets is gift, but another way is theft. Now, so I think that the really key idea and my explanation of why Europeans tend to be more generous than, than people who have less contact with markets historically, I'm talking about Western and Northwestern Europeans mostly. I think the reason for that is that we've had markets under the rule of law for a long period of time. You can actually take a chance on trusting somebody in a rule of law society. And the reason is the worst possible outcome isn't so bad. They're not going to take your kids. They're not going to burn down your house. Maybe you're going to get cheated once or twice. But the downside of social interactions is much less bad than in a society without the rule of law. So my interpretation of the sort of success of liberal society in producing a citizen that is actually fairly cooperative in global comparative scale has to do with this powerful effect of the rule of law. It's not markets per se, but it's market exchange under a rule of law. The evidence for that is, I mean, that's mostly speculation. What I can say is it's consistent with what we know. It's a possible explanation. of what we know. Now, this idea that we might call it the micro Lucas critique, right? <laughs> the idea that that there's a feedback loop between incentives and and preferences and beliefs. I mean, this seems to have infiltrated into organizational design and mechanism design within the corporate world. I mean, I think that everybody in, in management, I think, understands this now. I mean, a great example of this is the NUMI experience, right? Which you talk, I mean, you didn't mention NUMI in, in the book, but it, it's really how you move from one equilibrium to another, right? And I love that story because they, they, they didn't change the workers, same exact people. So presumably they had, if preferences were fixed, well, then the preferences are the same, but obviously something changed and you saw radic radically different behavior. And I think everyone in management understands that, but have these insights penetrated into public policy to the same degree or into child rearing you know, and family dynamics to the same degree? Or am I overestimating the extent to which the corporate world has begun to understand these feedbacks? Well, I think you'd be overestimating it if you said that the examples like that were common. But the fact that they exist, they're on the ground, well-documented examples, that's really exciting. But now, if you think, of, are there other examples? I think that probably most public policy experts, at least most successful political leaders and most parents, have a more sophisticated view of this than most economists do. We know that, I mean, Bentham said this, that punishments are supposed to be lessons. Lessons. Now, economists think that punishments are just you add something or subtract something for your payoffs. But no, we're supposed to see the process of imposing incentives and constraints as a process of producing a certain kind of individual. That's what Aristotle said. And he was right. Now, I don't think this is really big news to political leaders, as I said, or to parents, but I do think it's hard to pull off on a societal scale. And we sometimes make mistakes. I mentioned COVID and the vaccine mandates. I think it's well known that there was a negative response to the mandates. And the response is this. It, this is based on research with Katrin Schmelz, a German uh, psychologist and economist with whom I've worked. We studied reactions in Germany. We had a panel data set. So we had the same people over and over again during the course of the pandemic, starting at the beginning. And so we tracked what they were thinking and what they were believing, and then their attitudes towards vaccination. 
we weren't so interested in whether they were getting vaccinated. We wanted to know, did they approve of vaccinations as a policy? And what we found is that if vaccines were mandated or masks or travel restrictions, we, we asked about a whole range of policies. The mandates had a very significant negative impact on people's favorable attitude towards those policies. Now, that's a problem. The reason why that's a problem is that we know from a public health standpoint that we need mandates. We have to have, I mean, there's certain things that have to be required, inoculations and so on. And probably going forward for to address climate change and the future pandemics, which of course we have, but we need that kind of mandated compliance. But uh, this is an example of, I mean, we shouldn't fault our political leadership for getting it wrong, which they sometimes do on these questions. It's really very complicated. And partly because of the siloed nature of economic research, we don't have enough people going out and doing the research of the type that Katrina and I did saying, well, okay, let's bring to bear some psychology and some economics on this and think about how this policy is having this negative effect and what could be done about it. I think there's a lot of research that can be done in that way. We don't yet know how to make incentives and morals be complements rather than substitutes. But we do have examples of policies which have done that. It's a rich field. And I think we'll probably make some progress in this area. And I think if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. Now, you recently wrote an article and been giving presentations on what you called moral economics. And one part of that is the explanation of and, and a critique of the kind of liberal trilemma, right? And, you know, this is something which I guess Albert Hirschman first started thinking about this. And I mean... Arrow, right? I mean, the impossibility theorem and March of Sen and all these people were, were thinking about this. And you say that we need to rethink this, right? So could you tell us a bit about the, this liberal trilemma? Because I think most people who are in the field understand it. Most people who are in law probably understand it. Most people in economics understand it. Most people in policy, even if they've never had it articulated, but they make all of these assumptions about what's desirable, but they don't really necessarily understand right the difficulties in pursuing all of these three different policy goals. Yeah, sure. Thanks for mentioning the title of the work I'm now working on, Moral Economics. As you can see, I like oxymorons. Moral economics is a little bit like military intelligence or any of these other words that are famous oxymorons. People think, oh, that's shocking. How could you possibly combine those two words? I did the same in my book, The Cooperative Species. Because the word cooperative sounds like some kind of, you know, humanistic anthropologist and species sounds like sociobiology. But I think that it helps sometimes to put these unusual terms together. Now, what I call the liberal trilemma is the following claim, which I think is really important to our understanding of liberalism. This is the idea that you can combine three desiderata of a liberal society. And the one is that it should be efficient. In some sense, of course, in economics, we call that trade of efficiency. A second is that participation should be voluntary, so no coercion. And the third is that because we have liberal values, we don't take a position about what are good values or bad values, and rather we take a stance in favor of what's called preference neutrality, whereas preference neutrality just means whatever it is that we design has to work for any kind of preferences. And by the way, I'm sure you're noticing that goes directly back to Hume. We're going to try to design a constitution for knaves. 
not only for knaves, but it has to work for knaves too. So that's preference neutrality. So imagine now a triangle with three vertices. These are three desiderata of a liberal society. Efficiency, preference neutrality, uh, and non-coercion. Now, when the Nobel Prizes were given in 2006 for mechanism design, I was thrilled. It's a fantastically important field. How do you design incentives and constraints so as to achieve desirable social outcomes in society? It's really going back to the way the classical writers thought. That is, we have a set of objectives, the free societies, the kind of objectives I just said. What kind of institutions could do that? Now, the, the thrust of mechanism design, for which the three Nobel laureates were awarded their prize, was to show that that's not possible. Those three desiderata cannot be jointly achieved under any conditions. Now, that is big news. By the way, it had been around at that time for 25 years. So it wasn't new news. And in fact, the Nobel Committee said exactly that. What these people showed, it's an impossibility result. Now, that's really important. What it said is, you can get any two, but you can't get three. You can have efficiency and efficiency and preference neutrality, but then you have to coerce some people to participating against their will. Or you can have efficiency and coercion, but then you have to give up on preference neutrality and so on. Um, now, the of course, what I'm interested in is the preference neutrality idea. Can we afford preference neutrality? Can we afford to not care what people are like? Now, I say this with a great deal of trepidation. Because societies which have cared what people are like a lot by trying to indoctrinate them into being a great example of this or that religious order or this communist order or so on have inflicted terrible harm on people and their freedoms. But it seems to me that we cannot act as citizens the way we never would act as parents, that is, indifferent towards the values that we are creating. We have to take the lesson, or as a teacher, we daily take it as obvious that we care about the values that other people have and that we ought to care. But let me add to this just something which is perfectly obvious. We can't solve the problems we're addressing today if we have entirely self-interested people. Now, the liberal's trilemma is just a mathematical demonstration of that. But as a practical matter, we have to start caring about the kinds of people our social order is producing. And that includes, for example, uh, whether or not we're producing citizens of a democratic society who have the tolerance and democratic skills and sense of possibility of shaping their own life and writing their own autobiographies themselves with their, with their communities, that's up for grabs now. So we better care about producing the kinds of citizens that will live in a, in a society that we will find worth living in. And in that paper that you've read, I introduced the term deliberately attention-getting, I should say, repugnant preferences. Preferences that are repugnant because if they're widely shared, it would be impossible to have a free society. Now, I don't think that's very controversial in terms of, if, if people want to argue the case, I think probably I persuade you. Uh, it's not the question that I'm wrong. It's a question that, it, that I am right. That's the problem. I'm right and we don't know how to do it. We learned over time to design constitutions for knaves. That's what economics did. 
we haven't yet learned how to design constitutions for people who are self-interested and people who are other-regarding and ethical, when the other-regarding and ethical includes not just altruists and people who are reciprocal and justice-minded, but also religious zealots, homophobic people, racists, and so on. But that's the world we're in. Well, circling back to Aristotle, I guess the idea is, you know, good laws can potentially make good men, right? And we need to take that seriously. Yes, we do have to take Aristotle seriously, and we have to learn how to do it while maintaining liberal commitments to individual freedom and the greatest possible scope for human development. That's not an easy thing to do. We haven't figured out it. The book is called Moral Economy, Why Good Incentives Are No Substitute for Good Citizens. Good for policymakers, managers, and parents. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.